This morning I'll be reading from Exodus chapter 18. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh, and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, "'What is this you are doing for the people?' Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses answered him, Because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Moses' father-in-law replied, What you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. This is God's word to us this morning. Thank you, Nancy. Good morning, everybody. Welcome this morning to Bethany. It's good to have you with us both here in the sanctuary and also uh, worshiping online, various places around the country and around the world. Uh, please take a moment. We'll pray together, and then we'll look at the text. Father, we'd like to thank you that we can... Gather within these walls now to listen for your voice, and we trust and ask and pray and believe that you will teach us from the revelation that you have spoken into uh, humanity and into history, through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, you would speak to each one of us. We gather here in various states of heart and condition with hope and fear, with peace and anxiety, with strength and weariness. And so would you meet us now, Father, equipping us to continue on the journey of transformation that is found as we follow you and move toward becoming in greater measure people who represent the love and joy and mercy and heart of Christ in our world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And so we're continuing a series this morning looking at the life of Moses. And uh, as those of you who have been here for a while know, Moses is the leader of the nation of Israel and he's leading Israel now in this section and subsequent sections. He's leading Israel through the wilderness and they're on a journey. Because so much of the life of faith is portrayed for us in Scripture as a journey, I really enjoy backpacking for more than just the backpacking. I love backpacking, and I love creation and nature and being out in the woods, but I really also feel that I get a lot of sermon material from uh, being out in the woods. And uh, one of the things that happened years ago with my son, Noah, who is now uh, 30, I think. He is something like 30. He is 30, actually. Now I know it. <laughs> it registered. Uh, one, of the things, one of the things that uh, I remember was when Noah was, about, I think he was eight years old, and we were hiking to a place called Snow Lakes up in the North Cascades, and the very first part of the hike is up, up, up through switchbacks, and it's, it was a hot day, southern exposures, the sun is beating down on you, 
And he enjoys the outdoors. We lived in the mountains. He enjoys hiking. But this was actually a bit much for him. And I'm not the king of sensitivity when it comes to knowing what's a bit much and what's appropriate, right? And so we're hiking. We're talking. And he's getting a little more quiet along the way. Maybe even a little bit listless, I would say. We get to, these, we get to the top of these switchbacks. And now we're going straight for a while before we have to go up a little bit more. And then it's down to the lakes. And so when we get to the top of the switchbacks, uh, uh, I'm continuing on and I'm talking to him and he's behind me and then he's so quiet that I wonder if he's okay and then I turn around and he's gone. And I think to myself, where's my son? I should probably go back and find him. And so I turn around and I go back and maybe 100 yards back or so is my son Noah, eight years old, sitting on the trail sobbing. He's just crying. And he says, I can't go on anymore. It's too hot. I'm too tired. It's too much. It's too hard. Why, did, why are we doing this? I don't like it anymore. And so I said, don't worry. Problem solved. I'll carry you. So you stay here. And then I took his pack. And then I hiked up to the top, the rest of the uphill. Then I came back 20 minutes later or so. I got him and put him on and carried him up. And he enjoyed that. It was all good. And then we walked down together, and then we enjoyed the lakes and some day hikes. And the story had a happy ending. But there was a moment, there was a moment when I needed to carry him. And this is really a little bit of what we see this morning in this text. And here's why. Because all of us are on a journey. And the journey that we find ourselves on is articulated many places in the New Testament. My favorite place is in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 to 18, which says this. If I am enjoying and pursuing intimacy with Christ, as I focus on Jesus, gazing, as we're told, gazing at the glory of the Lord, here's a promise. We're being transformed from glory to glory to glory to glory to glory. We're becoming more and more and more like Christ. More joy, peace, hope, pouring through us into a lost and needy and terrified world. And we need it. The world needs it. So we need to stay on the journey. And yet the reality is, all of us in the room at various times get stuck. We all, we all get stuck. And at various times, all of my children have gotten stuck with me on journeys, altitude sickness, cold, heat, hunger, and I've gotten stuck on journeys as well. And all of those moments of getting stuck are very, very instructive because when we're stuck, we either stay there or we go back or we adapt and go on. Those are the only three options. We stay, we go back, we adapt and go on. <clears throat> and in fact, the beauty of the wilderness is there's really only two options. You, can't, you actually can't stay there. You either adapt and go on, or you go home. And, and similarly, in the life of faith, you don't ascend the mountain partway. Oh, yeah, I was getting to know Jesus, and now I'm, oh, I think I'm, I think I'm done growing. Look, you're either continuing to ascend, or you're descending. There's no other, there really is no option to say, you know, I'm going to cruise with $2 worth of God just so I have enough guilt in my life to feel, you know, holy, and enough worship to feel good about my self-esteem, and, you know, I put a little money in the plate, and, and that, I, that's all I want. I don't want any, I've had enough of God. Look, as soon as you're stuck, you're dying. And, and so you're either going to go back or you're going to go on. And we learned a great deal in this particular text this morning, Exodus 18, about our faith journey and the reality that all of us get stuck. And so when we become stuck, what do we do? And today's example, a very positive example of Moses getting stuck. The leader gets stuck. And leaders get stuck. And then we learn from Moses uh, that uh, he has this problem and if, it doesn't, if it's not addressed, it'll destroy him. 
as we heard read. And good news, and it's actually very good news and instructive in our current cultural climate, the good news is this, Moses is stuck, but he's not just stuck, he's teachable. Someone speaks truth into his life and he listens. And then he adapts to the truth that is spoken and that becomes transformative to him and he's able to continue on in the journey. He not only listens but responds, it's called adaptation. So today's events in this text become prototypical for everyone who wants to keep growing in Christian life. We all get stuck. No, we get it. We all get stuck. But do we adapt? And by the way, uh, when we say stuck in a Christian life, the presenting problems for that stuckness are manifold. It's not just, oh, my devotional life. Oh, no. Look, if you're stuck in your marriage, your faith life is stuck too. If you're frustrated vocationally, uh, stuck. Health stuck. Like, where, like issues come up that actually reveal heart issues. Like our heart looked good until the problem came and then we saw our heart, as I'll share in a minute. So um, Moses is stuck. And then we learn from this encounter that the, there's, there's two things you have to do to get unstuck. A, you have to, or one, if you follow the outline, face problems. You have to face your problems. And two, you have to enact solutions. So this, is, this isn't hard, right? Face your problems, enact solutions. Well, if it's not hard, how come we're all stuck all the time? And the reason is, there's only two reasons that we're stuck. We don't like facing our problems, and we don't like the solutions that are offered to us. Other than that, we're fine, okay? So, so, so that's what's going on here, and we want to begin by seeing here, look, uh, Moses needs to face his problem, and we all have problems. And so here, Moses' problem, as we heard read, it b- picks up in Exodus 18, verses 13 to 16, where he says, it came about on the next day Moses sat to judge the people, and this is not, your hair's too long. Tuck your shirt in. This is not that. This is, people have disputes, and he's mediating disputes. So when it says judge, that's what's going on. Moses is listening to the conflict that's arising because two million people are backpacking together for 40 years. And inevitably, you know, relationship problems will occur, okay? So uh, he's judging people, and then it says, uh, when Moses' father-in-law saw everything he was doing for the people, he said, what are you doing? Why do you alone sit as judge? And Moses said, well, the people come to me, and if they have a dispute... I settle it. So, uh, they're standing all day. It says in verse 13, from morning to evening, people, there's a line. You can picture it, right? I mean, two million people. What if only 1% of that group of people had problems? And that would be generous, right? Uh, if only 1%, that's 20,000 people. So, every morning there's a lineup. Hey, if you have a problem, let me help you. And now the line is 20,000 lines, so all day long, from morning to evening. And at the end of the day, and how many have ever felt this before? At the end of the day, your workload doesn't feel smaller, it feels more at the end of the day, because while you've been piling, you know, taking away your list, other things have been coming to your list. Is, is, is anyone identify? Do you understand what I'm saying here? I've been many of us in the room. This happens to me, particularly on Mondays, which are administrative days, because I'm in meetings all day long and I don't have any time to check emails at all. At the end of the day, I feel good until I open my emails. And then I go, oh, wait, I thought the day was over and I was going to go home and cook a burger and sit in a hot tub, but oh no, (coughs) you know, (coughs) and there's a load. So that's Moses here. He's overwhelmed. He's overwhelmed, right? Now, the real problem here, Moses' problem is capacity. He's a leader of two million, leading these two million in a place from this point on, from Midian on, 
He's leading through land he's never been before. He's never been there. And he's leading Israel in a setting where they're learning every day that they need to depend on God every day, in every way. They have to depend on God for food, for water, for direction, uh, and, and for even comfort and shelter in the middle of the heat of the day. They have to, they, they're depending on God in absolutely every single way. And here's the thing. It, it's in us to not depend. Anybody in the room? In other words, how many would prefer, uh, like, total financial independence versus depending on somebody? I mean, that's a silly question. In America, anyway, all our hands go, we all, like, I want to be independent. Of course they do. Yeah. We want, we want independence, not dependence. We want uh, 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 security, not our needs met daily. We want to make our own way, not follow somebody else, let alone a cloud leading us. And I want to move, and the cloud doesn't move. What do I do? Well, we, look, we want to make our own path. And it says in the Bible, all of us like sheep have gone astray. So I'm tired of God's ways. I do my own thing. Trouble ensues when I do my own thing. And then this creates not only personal trouble, but interpersonal conflict. And this is the point of the text. Because it says in Proverbs 14, 12, and Proverbs 16, 25, look, there's a path that seems right to us. And so every, all of us in the room, there are times when we, we're making choices, and we make a choice, and it's just a logical choice according to everything we know. We're, there's a culture shaping us, there's a family history shaping us, and there's a fallen nature shaping us as well, and we make a choice. And so we choose, oh, this is what I'll do. And in Proverbs 14, it says, look, when you don't take God into account in the choices that you make, and actually allow God to reign in the governing and shaping of that choice, you will choose a way that's destructive. That's why Deuteronomy 30, at the very end of these five books of, of, called the Pentateuch, which is about Israel's journey through the wilderness, they're now standing at the edge of the promised land. It's 40 years later. There's a new generation. They're about to go into the land. And God says this through Moses. God says, look, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. I'm setting before you. There's two mountains. One mountain, all the, the law is read and all the blessings if you obey. The other, all the curses if you disobey. This is what God says. I set before you life and death, blessing and curse. And then here's Moses. Choose life that you might live by loving God, by obeying his voice, by holding fast. This is for your life. In other words, I'm giving you these commandments not to make you miserable. I'm giving you these commandments so that you might live well and in peace, so that you might sleep well. You might have joy. You might have peace. You might be free from anxiety. You might live courageously. You might live in purity. You might have relational health. That's why I spoke, says God. So follow me. But we don't want to. Often we choose our own path. Whether it's money, sex, uh, bitterness, rather than forgiveness, whatever it is, we choose our own path. So in spite of the fact that God's revelation and guidance are given that we might know life, it's in us over and over again to make our own path, to choose our own way. And when we do that, the results are not pretty in any of our lives. We have a world filled with loneliness, addiction, fear, broken relationships, cynicism, greed, Polarized communities that won't even talk to each other, whether it's political or doctrinal. Now, you take all that mess created when any one of us creates our own reality, multiply that by two million, you have Moses' situation. Discontent, infighting, faction building, continual whining, ever doubting, that's this group of people. So in Numbers 11, which is not a parallel text, but it's a similar text, uh, it's, it, it, it's later in the history of Israel, and they've been complaining continually. 
Now you come to Numbers 11, and, and so they've been complaining. And then in Numbers 11, they complain yet again. So they, I've complained about the food. I've complained about the water. I've complained about Moses' uh, uh, capacity to lead. I've complained about why is Moses leading anyway? Can't we all lead? Who needs a leader? Uh, that was a complaint. I've complained about Moses' wife. I've complained about Moses' chief of staff uh, named Aaron. Uh, I've complained. I've complained about everything. And then when you come to Numbers 11, this is what it says. Now the people became like those who complain. And I just laugh. It's like, oh, suddenly now they're complaining? No, no, they've been complaining all along, but now they're really complaining because at this point in Numbers 11, God is so mad at what, it doesn't even say what they were complaining about, but God is so mad there in Numbers 11 that fire rains down from heaven. He puts up with all this other stuff. Something happens in Numbers 11. God starts to kill people. And then, and then the people go to Moses. They say, Moses, oh, we're so sorry. We're complaining. Please pray. Stop the fire. Moses prays. The fire stops. Immediately what happens? The, it says, Numbers 11, it says, then the people said, oh, I wish we lived in Egypt, man. We had fish, cucumbers, melons. Now we have this stupid manna everywhere. Take us home. Are you kidding me? Complain. Fire from heaven. Intercession. Fire stops. Next act, not even a thank you note, right? Gosh, Moses, you know, kudos for praying and not killing us. I mean, the very next word, we're sick of the food. Now, don't throw stones. This is, understand, this is all of us in the room. Why? Because we, we, you saw last week, if you were here, we carry in us the flesh. There's a piece of us that resists God. All of us in the room. It doesn't go away when you come to Christ. You have the spirit, but Galatians 5, you have the flesh. And it says in Galatians 5, these are warring against each other. So the flesh is there. And so if you listen to the flesh, when the flesh prevails, what comes out isn't pretty. And it happens in big ways at times, massive things, infidelity, um, <clears throat> relationships imploding because life isn't going well. It happens in little ways as well. Uh, I mean, it happened for me yesterday the classic example, this is the flesh, right? I'm, I'm leaving after this service to go speak at a thing in Los Angeles. So yesterday afternoon, I had my notes set out on, the, on our kitchen table. When I, I don't preach off an iPad or anything. I preach off notes like this. And by the way, uh, these notes are uh, made with an air jet printer, right? So they, they melt in water. It's important for the story. The pen also melts. And I've got the notes out, and I'm like this. It's the middle of the afternoon. Donna's going with me, so she's busy helping her mom pack, so I, I'm going to vacuum. So I vacuumed half the house, but the other half yet, not yet vacuumed. And uh, I say, I'm going to do my notes, take a break from vacuuming, review all my notes. And I have this picture in my mind of how this is going to play out, where I'm going to sit and pray over the notes and pray for the people who will hear the speaking and get on with life. And so then I say, what I really need is a, cup of tea, because that really will, you know, settle the ambiance of the moment. I'll look so zen. I even, it was even called zen calming tea <laughs> in a box, and, you know, some boiling water, and then put the tea bag in, and I'm walking to the uh, table, and I trip on the sofa, and the cup is important somehow to my wife, so I hold on to the cup, but the, the, the fluid inside the cup has its momentum and continues on to the table. And it's, it's all over my notes. My notes are soaking wet. And two books and my iPad, all soaked. And then I said words that I've never said from the pulpit, ever. <laughs> I was so, and I was mad, 
and I was like, oh, this book is ruined. And then, so now, so quickly I put my shoes on. We have a kind of no shoes in the house rule. So I put my shoes on so I can take the books outside down to the front yard where the sun is shining and uh, get the books to begin to dry out. And with my shoes still on, I go back in the house and then I take page, like take, pull my notes apart, right? They're, they're stapled. So I, you know, I pull them apart and then every note with clothespins on a line in the backyard hoping the wind will blow and dry them out before they melt, before the words melt, so that I can see them when I speak. And, and so I'm going front to back, front, notes, water, t- t- you know, towels on the floor. Then Donna comes to my wife, and she sees that I'm wearing shoes in the house. That's all she sees. Doesn't see anything else. And she says, why are you wearing shoes? What are you wearing shoes in the house? You know. And you bring dirt in. Look at that. There's dirt there where I just found I said, no, ah, the tea, you know. You're insensitive. What do you mean I'm insensitive? Are you kidding me? Can you not see here? I'm trying to pray with Zen Z over my notes. And you are, all you care about is the dirt on the floor? Who cares about the stupid dirt on the floor? And then we're bam, bam, bam. 20 minutes, no kidding. I mean, we cover everything. Yeah, that's all you need to know. <laughs> everything. It was just a tea. Ah. But you see, it's never just a tea. What happens is our flesh is revealed when there's a dissonance between the life we envision and the life we have. And when our flesh is revealed, understand, it doesn't just affect us. It affects those around us. That's exactly what happened to Moses. He has two million people and the flesh is revealed. And when the flesh is revealed in them, it actually reveals his flesh too. So... We have to face our problems. We have to say, you know what? Uh, we have a problem right now. We have a problem. There's a, it's a, we, we have an intimacy problem. I have, a pro- I have a bitterness problem. I have a financial problem. I'm, I am burnt out. I'm weary. I'm at the end of my... Whatever it is, we have, to face, we have to face our issues. It's the first thing. Don't pretend all is okay. In fact, the beauty of reading the scriptures is you don't have to pretend everything's okay. Moses, chosen by God, a saint... In the, in the great, you know, the chapter that's kind of called the Hall of Faith is Hebrews 11, where the kind of the best of the best are in the, kind of listed there as the most faith. Moses has tons of faith. And he also has Numbers chapter 11, where he says, God, if I have to lead these people one more day, just kill me now. Because I, I, I don't, I'm sick of them. They're sick of me. I'm burnt out. I don't want to do this anymore. That's also the great Moses. Oh, yeah, but that was Moses. What about David? Really? You want to get started on David? Um, you know, adultery and, and murder and, you know, covering up the murder with deceit. Yeah, now he's a great guy. Apostle Paul, always positive. Really? Second Corinthians chapter 1. <clears throat> Let me remind you, says Paul, when we were in Asia, our ministry was so intense, we despaired even of life. I would rather have died than continue on doing what I'm doing. Life was hard. Yeah. You are never, hear me, we're never granted immunity from living in a fallen world. No one ever promised that. And the, and the notion that I can, I can pray and my promises evaporate is heresy, if I can be blunt. I've known friends who wanted to claim victory over disease and then, and then their child died because they were too late with medical treatment. I don't want to go down that rabbit trail other than to say this. What I say to people over and over again is not that God can't heal people. God can. God does. God will. 
We pray it, we ask it, we hope it, we believe it. And we also recognize that the promise of Scripture was never that we're granted immunity from living with the effects of, 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 of a fallen world. No, we live in a fallen world. Cells mutate, cells divide, cars run red lights, wind cheers, things happen. What we are granted is the capacity to live as people of hope and mercy and joy in spite of the fact that the world is desperately broken. That's our promise. But never pretend that we are granted immunity from the brokenness. We're not. <laughs> Paul says, man, we carry this treasure, which is Christ, in this very plain earthen vessel, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's not always easy. We have problems. Yes, we do. It's okay. We can name them. We should name them. But then, it's not enough to wallow in problems, sit down on a trail and cry. <laughs> we need a solution. And the solution comes often, for the person with the problem, comes from other people. And so under this rubric of solution, I'm going to share with you the who of the solution, who brings it, the what is the solution, what's the solution, and the why. Who brings the solution to Moses? Well, interesting, his father-in-law Jethro. Now, here's, here's Moses' journey. Um, he, he was in Egypt. He, went to, he, uh, he tried to deliver Israel uh, through his own means. He, then he, he was in exile. Then he lived in Midian in the desert for 40 years. Then he went back to Egypt. But when he went, by the time he went back to Egypt, he'd married. And so he left his wife and his children in Midian with his father-in-law Jethro, and he went back to Egypt. Then he led the people out of slavery. The Red Sea parted. He brought them out. Uh, and now he's wandered through the wilderness, and now he's picking his wife up so that they can continue on in their journey. He's back in Midian now when we pick up the story in Exodus 18. So he's gone to Egypt, left, gone, coming back, and now on the way back, uh, here he is uh, picking up his wife, and he encounters his father-in-law, who then, as we heard read, uh, becomes a Christ. We call him a Christ follower, through a New Testament lens, but he's a believer. He's a believer here. He said, Jethro says, now I know the Lord is greater than all the gods. Now I know. I didn't know before, but now that I've heard the story of the Red Sea, of the Passover, of the plagues, of the deliverance, of the manna, of the water out of a rock, now I know Jehovah is the true God. It was proven. That's what he says. So brand new believer. And then, Four verses later, a brand new believer is giving advice to Moses. This is significant. In other words, let me say it a different way. The solution comes from Moses' father-in-law. The counsel comes from a man who's just become a believer. And why does this matter? This matters because often in our nature, governed by fear, when we don't like a message that we hear, have you ever heard this before? Shoot the messenger. It'd be, you know, eminently easy in this moment to hear something from Jethro and say, oh yeah, well, you know what? Uh, look, you just became a believer in verse 11 and we're only in verse 16. <laughs> like, why should I listen to you? Well, like, what do you have to say to me? You, like, you're brand new to this. Or worse, you're a Democrat. Or you're a Republican. Or a Presbyterian. Or a Baptist. Or a Free Methodist. And we shoot the messenger, and then we end up surrounding ourselves with people who think like we do, act like we do, write like we do, believe exactly what we believe. It's an echo chamber. And Christ didn't desire that we live that way ever. 
The goal of following Jesus, there are, among many other goals, is, is to expand our world, not shrink it. How do I know that? Well, because Paul didn't just know the Old Testament as a, as a rabbinic Jew who became a Christ follower. He knew Greek poetry. He knew Roman law. John Wesley knew his culture. Abraham Lincoln invited his enemies over for food, drink, conversation. At our best, we're open to receiving words from people who don't believe exactly 100% the way, the way we do because watch this, Hebrews chapter 6 says that a sign of discernment and maturity and faith is that you have the capacity to know by listening good from evil. You can sift it out. So if you have discernment, you can listen to anything and everything and learn from one another. At our best, we Christ followers should be the most curious the most engaging, the most generous people on the planet. Why? Because we have nothing to fear by hearing any idea. Because we have a reference point against which we can ap apply a test for any idea. Doesn't mean we'll always even be right in our interpretation, but we desperately, desperately need each other to continue to grow into Christ-likeness. And so if you leave here and then you go out to go to the restrooms here, watch it. Above the door, you see a sign. And what does it say? In essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. That sign was there when I was a college student here in 1976. That is the ethos of Bethany Community Church. We do not want to think alike <laughs> about everything. About the essentials, yes, but not about everything. That's why if you look at our ministry staff, you find people from all kinds of seminaries. Princeton Seminary, you know, way over here, some people would say way to the left. Uh, Talbot Seminary, that's me, some of way to the right. Fuller Seminary, in the middle somewhere. Azusa Pacific, Pentecostal. <laughs> Northwest University, Seattle Pacific University, Multnomah, really, yeah, all over the map. Except for one thing, we all believe in Jesus. Crucified, dead, buried, raised, coming again. That's what matters. And beyond that, frankly, we need each other. We need each other. So I love that Moses is listening to his father-in-law, who only gave a believer five verses earlier, right? What does his father-in-law say? Well, here's the deal. Verse 17, Moses, after Moses explains his problem... Moses' father-in-law says, the thing you're doing is not good. You will wear yourself out and the people. You can't do it alone. So what Jethro does here is what Pastor Phil Malding calls lifting up a mirror for the other. And I think it's one of my favorite phrases that Phil uses. He says, look, all of us need people in our lives who will help us see ourselves more clearly. And so what, what we need are people in our lives who will hold up a mirror so that we can see not the illusion of who we think we are, but who we really are. And Jethro does that for Moses. He holds the mirror and he says, look, if you continue doing this, it's going to be over for you. So he holds up this mirror to help him articulate the problem. First he asks him, hey, what, what are you doing? And then he, when he explains it, he challenges the status quo, implying, explain to Moses, Moses, you're stuck. And if you continue this way, you, well, you can't continue this way. The system doesn't work. Your plan is unsustainable. If you're going to move forward, you need to change. And can I just say this is one of the best things that friends can do for us is hold a mirror up. Everybody in the room, we all need friends 
who can help us see ourselves with greater clarity. Because we are not objective in understanding ourselves. We need others who will hold the mirror up. And to be blunt, we live in an era where our breadth of relationships is extending, but our depth of relationships is diminishing. So many, don't, many no longer have these kind of friends. Oh, I have plenty of, <clears throat> plenty of Facebook friends. Yeah, I've got friends to slackline with. Yeah, I'll go to a Mariner game. Yeah, we'll ride bikes. No problem. That's very different than a friend who will say, um, hey, Pat, can we sit and have a conversation? I want you to really see something. I want to help you see. And it's not finger-wagging, but neither is it passivity. It's a mirror. Look, take a look. Take a look, Moses. Where do you see yourself five years from now if you keep doing this every day? Is this sustainable? I mean, that, that's the friendship that, that holds up the mirror. And so what Jethro does, he holds up a mirror. I'll, I'll say to you, I'll just note, uh, very soon now, a class begins here entitled Spiritual Journey. And that is a, that's, a, that's a setting in which... Um, you with other people will walk a journey together precisely with the goal of holding the mirror up to one another. So you can be freed from those areas where you're stuck. And if you're like, I don't have a problem. Well, that's the biggest problem. But if we see our problem, then we need people who will hold the mirror to help us move forward. So Jethro becomes that. And then his plan under what is first he says, look, you need to pray for the people. All these people, pray for them. Uh, uh, you be the people's representative before God. Bring the disputes to God. And in verse 20, also teach the truth. Because, look, uh, if we teach people the reference point of God's ethic, then some people will self-select out of this problem line because they'll be able to solve the problem themselves. And then he says you need to, this is significant, he says you need to share the load. Verses 21 and 22. He says you have to share the load. Uh, divide up so that you're not the only one listening to problems. Some like groups of tens and hundreds and thousands, so that, so that the biggest problems ascend the ladder of this. It's just a hierarchy, honestly. And, and so now there are thousands of people leading, and they're able to solve minor disputes. The bigger disputes go to the next level, the bigger to the next, the next, until some still come to Moses. But it becomes a sustainable model. And now Jethro offers a why, and stated negatively, here's the why of this plan. He says, you will surely wear out both yourself and these people uh, because the task is too heavy for you. In other words, you're trying to leave, lead two million people, and here's the elephant in the room. Moses, you can't do it alone. You can't. You need help. And this is I just, I just such an important moment for us. Uh, all of us in the room must, we have to learn to both receive help and a give help. It's just a, it's a, this is maturity. Some of us, um, we, we resist this notion of interdependency. We grew up uh, in, a, in a more isolated environment. And I'm certainly that way. Uh, musically, I, I grew up uh, playing the piano. And the beauty of playing the piano is you don't need anybody else. You never have to call rehearsal. I can make beautiful music all by myself. But then I also started playing the timpani. You know what these are? These big kettle drums. Those are not so much fun to play alone. <laughs> they're, they're best played in a group. Yet, yet, I will say, in a group, 
hassles, man. Always hassles. Our band went to Europe when I was in high school, and there's all these interpersonal dynamics in a group, right? You're traveling together. I'm with my buddy in Vienna. We go to this marionette opera, and then uh, coming out, there's a thunderstorm. We start, my, my one friend and I, we start running, and my other friend is, oh, he's slow, and we had to decide, do we wait for him? Or do we go on? What a hassle to wait. Right? What a hassle. Surely he can find his way home. Well, here's what we learned. No, he couldn't. <laughs> we ran. We went to bed. We have the next morning. The bus is leaving. He's nowhere. And then the police drop him off at the motel an hour after we were supposed to leave. Uh, and he said, yeah, I couldn't find my way home, so I'm wandering the streets of Vienna. The police picked me up. They asked me where I'm staying. I told them I don't know. <laughs> so they, we had to go to the police station, call my parents back home. And he said, had to say to his parents, where am I supposed to be on the itinerary? What motel? They told him they dropped him off. And then the band director stuck his bony finger in my chest, and he said, if you ever do that at the end, I'm putting you on a plane and sending you back home. You're together, man. You're together. Oh, man, what a bother together. You know what? Not such a bother as I get older. The best lessons of this last decade for me, everyone, everyone, together. Hard relationships, hard conversations. Broken relationships mended. Some broken relationships still mending. Hassles. Together. Yesterday, my wife and I are um, trying to cut off the top of a tree up in the hills. And I'm trying to get up on a ladder with a chainsaw to cut this thing. And it's doable, but it's not wise. <laughs> so we're working on it a little bit. And then my neighbor says, hey, what do you say I bring my tractor over and you stand in the part and then I put it up? I can tell you it's A, safer and B, higher. Yeah, good. You know, I'm done, done. And it's what I'm, what I'm learning in every area of life is this. I, Christ shows up, not just in the text, but in people. Do you, do you, are you hearing me? So I've got to learn not just to give and wait for my friend who can't run fast, but I've got to learn, and this is harder for me, to receive and say, I need from you strength that I don't have. I need it. That's this text. And Moses does this. And so what you read at the end of Deuteronomy, when he dies, this is what you read, not today, but you read it. He's 120 when he dies. And it says when he, when he died, his, he still had strength at 120. How'd that happen? It happened right here. Because someone spoke into his life and held up a mirror and he listened. And a team came together to be the presence of Christ for one another. Who's in your life? Uh, that's the question we ask as we approach communion here in a moment. So uh, not for bringing forward, but for your own 
uh, response. Just look at this. The most wearing moment in my life right now, the most, what's, what's wearing you out right now? Is it a relationship? Is it work? Is it financial anxiety? What's wearing you out? And what step do you need to take in light of God's wisdom shown through Moses and Jeff? What step do you need to take to lighten the load? Christ doesn't just show up in the Bible. He shows up in the body. And so when we come to this table, Jesus said in John 6, look, this is my body, broken, for you, that you might know strength when you're weak, because the bread makes you strong. That you might know satisfaction when you're hungry, because this, my life will fill you. And this is the blood of the cup of forgiveness, shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. My life laid down so that you might know that you know that God loves you infinitely. Uh, Christ shows up in the text. Christ shows up in, in prayer. And yes, Christ shows up in the body. So receive, if you would, all that he is in order that when this service ends, you might be Christ to one another and to your neighbor and to your coworker and to your enemy that you might be Christ. Let's meet him at the table. Father, uh, speak to us now as we respond and we'll thank you for that. In the name of Christ we pray.